Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Beth Kaplan. Beth was born in New York City and grew up in Canada with two childhood years in London and one in Paris. After receiving her B.A., she attended one of the foremost theater schools in the world, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and worked as an actress mostly in Vancouver until 1981 when she left the stage to earn an MFA in creative writing at UBC. Beth has taught memoir and personal essay writing at Ryerson University and the University of Toronto and is the author of Finding the Jewish Shakespeare, The Life and Legacy of Jacob Gordon, a biography of her great-grandfather. She's lectured on Jacob Gordon in many places. In 2008, she delivered the Wexler Lecture in Jewish History in Washington, D.C., and she has taught and written broadly. Welcome, Beth. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. It's delightful that you're able to join me, um, and I have to say it was really a pleasure to meet you in New York uh, following the performance of The Jewish King Lear and enjoyed your talk following the performance and had the lucky treat of um, eavesdropping on conversation. Well, I wasn't really eavesdropping. Um, <laughs> no. Conversation that we enjoyed over lunch, uh, which compelled yes. me to invite you today. Well, thank you. Of course, for me, it was a great pleasure not just to hear this staged reading of my great-grandfather's play, but to meet David Mazauer again, whose great-grandfather was Sholem Ash. And so there aren't many of us who have, you know, great-grandparents from the Yiddish theater and who are Yiddish, you know, writers. So it's a great bond that he and I have. I know, and I wish I had turned the recorder on, but I was glad that he made the introduction. <laughs> yes. Um, so... Tell me, what drew you to Gordon's story? Well, um, it it's, uh, goes way, way back to my childhood, really, to um, my father, who was uh, whose name was Jacob Gordon Kaplan, whose mother was Gordon's eighth child. Um, and my dad had to move to Canada um, when he got his degree as a biologist from Columbia because of McCarthy, because my father was uh, an activist. He was a very left-wing man. And so I grew up in Canada, but every summer we would visit New York, and my grandmother would take me into the foyer of her apartment and show me the magnificent bronze bust of her father. You know, for a while there, I thought that every child had a grandparent or a great-grandparent with a bust, you know, and I gradually realized that, no, not everyone has a bust of their relative, this huge, beautiful bronze sculpture. So I was fascinated by this man, who he was, particularly because I started acting as a child and, and became an actress in my 20s, so I felt very linked to this man. So when I decided to take a master's degree in creative writing, I, I thought what I should do is research his life because there was no book specifically about him. He's mentioned in a number of books about Jewish immigration, about the Yiddish theater, but there was no book specifically about his life, and I decided that that's what I would write. Give me a little bit of background. I know that he was born in Russia, and he left for New York in 1891, and I'll let you fill in the rest here, just so we understand how he came to yes. New York and came to this work. Yes, so he was born in 1853 in a shtetl in the Pale of Settlement, of course, where all Jews in Russia um, had to live at sort of a big chunk of western Ukraine uh, where Jews were forced to live. 
he he had a his parents were fairly well off and he wasn't one of the most impoverished Jews so of course all Jews in the pale of settlement were pretty impoverished because they were not allowed to own land they were not allowed to do most jobs so his father had a variety of jobs he was homeschooled he married um at the age of 19 and it was when i put together the dates that i realized that his wife uh anna was 13 when she married him she was 14 when she had her first child and 15 when she had her second child and and in my research i I found out that that was normal, that people married very young. Of course, in those days, life expectancy was 50, you know, so to marry at 13 was not unusual. He became a teacher. He did all kinds of things, really. Um, He was also very involved with newspapers, Russian Jewish newspapers, but he most of all became the leader of a kind of cult-like group called the Spiritual Biblical Brotherhood. And again, in my research, I learned that the 1860s were a lot like the 1960s in that there were all of these back-to-the-land movements, people wanting to live simply on the land. Uh, Gordon and his group were specifically followers of Tolstoy, who was very much, you know, at this stage he was living in the country and he was cobbling his own shoes. So that was what they wanted to do. They wanted to find farmland. And, of course, again, Jews were not allowed to own farmland, so they were really setting themselves out for failure or for a very difficult task. In 1891, his group was outlawed by the Tsarist authorities, and Gordon was forced to flee. He So he uh, sailed for New York in July of 1891, leaving behind his wife, Anna, who was eight months pregnant with their ninth child. So, you know, I tried to imagine my great-grandmother with eight children about to give birth to a ninth, watching her husband disappear, not knowing when she would see him again. Um, And again, this is the way it happened often in families, that the men went first, and usually about three years later, they sent for their families. They'd made enough money, and that's exactly what happened here. So he landed at the end of July, 1891, and immediately he began to write for the um, Jew, for the Yiddish newspapers. And so immediately um, his work was noticed by the actors for the Yiddish theater. And there was this famous meeting with Jacob Adler, who asked him to write a play for the Yiddish theater. And that was the beginning of history being made. I, yeah, I was going to ask you a little bit about that. So he arrives thinking that he will find his way as a journalist and um well actually he first of all he applied for farmland there was oh. this um there was the baron hirsch fund which had been set up to uh have young people be given plots of land to create farms jewish immigrants so he immediately applied for farmland for his group who were following him over to america and he was turned down So immediately he had to find another way to earn a living, and it was the newspapers. And he connects with Jacob Adler. um, Yes. And 
that relationship, is it safe to say, really influenced and informed his work as a playwright? And how so? And, and where did they find sort of a meeting point, as it were? Yes, that was, I, I think, uh, the most important professional relationship that he had, except later when he formed a very powerful bond with the actress Kenny Lipson, who was his first Mirella Afros. Um, but the the meeting with Adler was, it's described in, in many articles. You know, Adler was a magnificent man with white hair, and he was very, of course, flamboyant, and, you know, he was an actor. And, of course, Gordon was an intellectual who didn't believe in flamboyance. But they they had this meeting where they were speaking to each other in their perfect and beautiful Russian. And Gordon found to his amazement that this man was an intelligent and an intellectual. The the um, Yiddish theater was so debased at this time. You know, it was a very new art form, and it had really been cobbled together. It was mostly improvised bits and pieces and, and talking to the audience and songs and shtick and uh, there had never really been serious plays written for the Yiddish theater. And so Gordon had no respect for the Yiddish theater at all. But when he met Adler, who wanted a serious play, Gordon thought, yes, I can do this. I can bring the Yiddish theater into the great world theater, the great theater of realism, which is what he wanted to create for the Yiddish theater in imitation of Ibsen and the great plays of realism. And so he agreed to write a play for Adler. He's described, I think, um, rightfully so, as a modernist. Um, and, and as you say, his work was really not at all typical of what an audience would find um, when they went to Yiddish theater at that time. I, oh, yes. I, I'd like to know if you think he reshaped that audience and what their expectation was. And and also, it seems as though the Jewish King Lear really established Gordon as a playwright. It was his third play, is that correct? No, it was his, perhaps his fifth oh, play, okay. fifth or sixth. Um, yes, it was written a year after he wrote his first play for Adler. So he'd had some practice. Um, but yes, and this was the first time that he had adapted Shakespeare, though he made it completely original. He took the bones of King Lear and he made it the story of a Russian Jewish merchant and, and completely his own ideas. It was the, just the basic structure was Shakespeare's. And of course, there was a happy ending because that was a necessity for the Yiddish theater at that time. But he really, um, there's a, a description of him in one book that he was the only playwright who had the brute force to make both the actors and the audience pay attention and listen. And, you know, we have to understand this was an audience who were exhausted immigrants who had never seen the theater before. And here they are, most of them working in factories or in push carts. They come to the theater exhausted. They bring their babies. They bring their food. Um, and they want to hear the language of home. And suddenly they have this man who's lecturing them about how to live. You know, Gordon was very serious and very didactic. And he's giving them lessons in kindness, in generosity, in truthfulness, 
Um, and also, he's creating the character, for example, of a very religious Jew who's a hypocrite. And uh, sometimes there's a, a Christian character who's a good man. You know, these are stereotypes that were not common at all in the other plays of that time. So he was definitely challenging his audience. And at the beginning, um, this made his success, and he was hugely admired and respected. Later, when he became angrier and his audience grew tired of him kind of hectoring them, uh, it didn't work at all for him. It's been written, or I read, that he wrote roles, not plays. And I wonder how that sits with you or if you could expand on that a little bit. Yes, well, in fact, through David Mazauer, I uh, ended up speaking with a very old actor from the Yiddish theater in London who had performed in many of Gordon's plays. And what he said was that he created both plays and roles. That is, of course, he had to write for a specific company. So when he was writing for Adler's company, he had to write, of course, a magnificent role for Adler, a role for Mrs. Adler, for Mogulescu, the comic, for the soubrette. You know, he had very specific requirements for all of his plays. Um, but at the same time, he did, you know, there are, these are magnificent, meaty roles, and they did make stars of these actors. Um, I mean, Adler, David Kessler, Kenny Lipson, Bertha Kalish, these, these actors became great stars because of these wonderful roles that Gordon wrote for them. So I think, yes, he wrote fabulous roles, but he also wrote very interesting plays. I wanted to share this um, from your book, um, if you'll permit me to read this and then ask you a yes. question. Okay. Yes. Um, and in the book you write, in one much-told story, a distraught play playgoer was so swept into the drama that after a tragic scene, he ran down the aisle toward the stage, shouting at Adler that he should leave his heartless daughters and come home with him. Young people witnessing mm -hmm. the degradation of the elderly man were stricken with remorse about their parents. It's another famous legend that local bankers knew which nights the play was being performed because early the next morning, youths afflicted with guilt were lined up at the banks waiting to send money home. So tell me about this. It's just it's a delicious piece of writing and, and quite a scene. Yes. Well, and again, of course, we have to try to remember the dark ages before television, before radio even, when the theater was central to people's lives. And particularly for this audience, um, because at the very beginning, there were very few synagogues, very few rabbis had immigrated. And so, for example, the Catholics had uh, mass, you know, there were Catholic churches, and so they could go to gather and be part of a group and, and something very familiar with mass. But for in the early years of Jewish immigration, there were very few synagogues. There were there were very few gathering places. The theater was the place where they met each other, where they gathered, where they heard this language of home. And of course, this is Mama Loshan. This is the language that they associated with childhood and with their mothers. So it it must have been quite extraordinary how powerfully 
the the audience was connected to what was going on on stage. These were very unsophisticated audience. You know, there's another story in the book about how Gordon was talking after one of his plays with an audience member who said it was it was very realistic, just like life. And Gordon said, "Well, thank you. I wrote it." And and the man said, "Why did you have to write it? You know, I mean, to him, the actors were just living their lives on the stage. You know, there was no concept of the fact that this had been written down and memorized. So an unsophisticated audience who loved actors and loved their writers. There were clubs that were dedicated specifically to the followers of Adler and to the followers of Kessler, to the followers of Gordon. You know, they met, they they worshipped. Um, it was quite an extraordinary time to have been in the theater. And, you know, as a former actress, I, I thought of it with great affection and sadness in a way that we don't have that kind of bond with actors anymore. I remember in the conversation that you were having with David that it was mentioned that his funeral was huge. Yes. It was the biggest, one of the biggest funerals that New York had ever seen. So in the Encyclopedia Judaica, it says that a quarter of a million people lined the streets the day of Gordon's funeral. That's in June um, 1909. He was only 56 when he died. And I think people couldn't believe that a man so stalwart, so important, so powerful had died. And so the crowds, I mean, there's a a story in the book that one of my great uncles was a, a young boy at the time on the Lower East Side. And he said he went down to try to go out and he could hardly get out his front door for the crowds lining the streets on the Lower East Side as Gordon's cortege made its way to the Thalia Theater where there was this huge theatrical event honoring him with Adler weeping and Kessler sobbing and many, many speakers. So, yes, um, he he was an extraordinary man. Um, he was very important for his time and place. As as I say in the book, he was not, of course, Shakespeare, the greatest playwright ever in the history of the world, but he was tremendously important for his time and place in creating a theater of dignity, a theater of ideas and conscience, and, you know, for a people who had never been to the theater before. And he was writing in a language that he barely remembered when he landed in New York. He had never written in Yiddish. So he accomplished an amazing amount. And, and beyond that, would you define his legacy? I, I think he's, well, I even posit in the book that many, you know, there's, it's a fact that shortly after Gordon's death, the whole movie industry began, and m- most movie theaters, most movie companies were created by immigrant Jews. And I wondered in passing if. Um, you know, at the beginning, actors were considered to be trace. I mean, really not not decent. You know, you wouldn't want your daughter to have anything to do with, with one. 
And after Gordon, the theater had achieved a new kind of respectability. And I wondered if immigrant Jews found it easier to go into show business because there was now an aura of dignity around it. Um, I, you know, I may be pushing it, of course. I mean, they also went into show business because uh, they didn't need money and connections the way they would in other businesses. It was wide open, and they just jumped right in and took over. But I do think that there was a kind of respectability and depth um, that it hadn't had before, thanks to Gordon. Oh, it does sound as though he pivoted theater as, as it was known when he arrived on the scene. No pun intended, yes. Yes, he he completely changed this. You know what was going on in the theaters, and there's a a wonderful quote from Marlon Brando, who worked with Stella Adler. You know, Adler Stella Adler was one of Jacob Adler's many actor children, and she went on to be one of the founders of the group theater and with her own acting school. And she trained many great American actors, including Marlon Brando, whom she discovered. And Brando was quoted as saying, if there were no Yiddish theater, there would have been no Stella. And if there hadn't been Stella, there wouldn't be me and all of these other wonderful actors. And Stella's first role was in Meryl Afros, the child role in Jacob Gordon's plays. And her whole early career was in the plays of Jacob Gordon. One quick question for you, the last one, I think. Um, yes, is, yes. Is there one play that you'd like to see staged, either in the original or in translation? I have just received uh, a translation that somebody, you know, I'm I'm on the internet, and so when something Gordon-related uh, comes up, people can find me, and someone has just sent me a translation of one of Gordon's early plays called The Madman, um, which was one of Adler's great roles, starring as a handicapped young man, and I happen to know that Gordon had a handicapped son, and I think that he was writing this role. He was in some ways imitating his own family, and it's a very interesting play, which has never been translated before. But you know there are many interesting plays, so um, I do hope that people begin to look into his phenomenal works and find a way to bring them to life for a modern audience. And I would be remiss if I didn't do a follow-up question. He was hugely prolific. Just if you could share the bit about how many plays he produced in such a short time um, when he launched into this career. Yes. Well, when he la so he landed in July at the end of July, eighteen ninety-one. So it uh, he had the meeting with Adler, and within one week, he walked into Adler's theater holding a four-act play, which was then produced in October. He wrote a second play for Adler in December and a third play for Tomaszewski in January. So that is within five months of landing in New York City, he had written three four-act plays for the Yiddish theater, and this was a man who had never written for the theater or in Yiddish. And he continued at that rate. Adler that year in 1892 created a theater company um, with Gordon as their playwright, and he was contracted to write a play a month. So that is a four or sometimes a five-act play a month. Uh, you know, it's unthinkable. And, of course, 
that's one of the reasons that many of his plays are not that great, because he did not have the luxury of time. He had to turn them out, and he did. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for taking the time to join me today, and also for your book. It's just an incredible work, and we're, I appreciate the fact that you spent the time to find out who this uh, great-grandfather of yours was, and it lends so well, much to the telling of the story of Yiddish theater. Thank you so much, Lisa. As, as I say in my talk, one of the great joys for me was to be able to give this book to my own children, including to my daughter, who is named for her great great-grandmother, Anna. And after she read it, she had tears in her eyes, and she said, Mom, I'm so proud to know where I come from. So I think that's one of the things that we biographers do, is to make sure that younger generations know where they come from. So that, that was an important part of my work, and I'm, I'm very happy the book is out there and that it works for people. So thank you so much for taking the time to ask me some questions. Um, uh, and for listeners interested in purchasing a copy of the book, the title again, Beth, is? It's called Finding the Jewish Shakespeare, The Life and Legacy of Jacob Gordon. It's published by the University of Syracuse, and it is available on, through the university or online at Amazon or bookstores. Oh, and I will just say that it is available online um, and on-site at the Yiddish Book Center's bookstore, yiddishbookcenter.org. Oh, so we're, we're thrilled to have it here, and we do hope that we can invite you to visit the center sometime soon. Oh, I'd love to. I did go uh, early on after the book was published. I spoke there, and I just thought it's the most wonderful place. And, you know, uh, I have donated the books of Gordon's from his library that were given to me after my great-aunt died. I've donated them to the National Yiddish Book Center. So they're there somewhere. He's there with you. Great. Well, let's stay connected. Thanks again. And um, Thank you, Lisa. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Rafi, and I'm a fellow at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode number 26, Erin Lansky's June 2012 conversation with Hannah Mlotek about her career and life in Yiddish. Until next time, be well, be healthy, sei gesund.